Coming up on Tech Nation, former New York Times journalist and Pulitzer Prize winner John Markoff talks to me about someone who today we would call an influencer, and he has been influencing now for decades. We'll talk about John's book, Whole Earth, The Many Lives of Stuart Brand. Then in biotech, Dr. James Mackay, the president and CEO of Aristea Therapeutics. He tells us about a painful disease which affects the palms of the hand and soles of the feet in postmenopausal women and how it may relate to other diseases. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2011, National Geographic explorer and residence Wade Davis wrote Into the Silence, The Great War, Mallory, and the Conquest of Everest. Today, a full century later, we have satellite imaging and GPS, satellite phones, and the experience of a hundred years of climbing. But in the 1920s, what did climbers know about climbing Mount Everest? They knew very, very little more. I mean, you know, the Everest had sort of emerged in the last years of the Raj as sort of the third pole. You know, the British and, and Empire of Explorers had lost the race for the North and South Pole, and here in their very midst was this third pole that rose into the heavens. And so the quest for Everest began really as a sort of a gesture of re redemption for an Empire of Explorers that had lost those races. But because of the intervening war, where so much of Britain was destroyed by the mud of Flanders, it emerged as a kind of a gesture of regeneration for a nation bled white by war. So that was always my interest in the story of George Mallory. In a sense, the, the empire, the great global empire of Britain, has really been gnawed by the Great War. Well, you know, that was a seminal event of our times. Um, you know, Churchill famously described the Second World War as just the, extinct, the um, second half of the First World War. He called it the Thirty Years' War. And he famously said, never there was, was there a war less necessary to fight um, than the first or more necessary to win than the second. I became interested in the story of George Mallory really in a serendipitous way. I was traveling 4,000 miles across Tibet as part of an ecological survey in the spring of 96 when the disaster happened on Everest that John Krakauer so powerfully wrote about in his book Into Thin Air. And uh, with me was Daniel Taylor, who was a uh, son and grandson of medical missionaries, and his father had been a great friend of Howard Somerville, who climbed with George Mallory in 1922 and 24. And the very next fall, Daniel and I were back on the east face of Everest, in the Kanchung face, in the Gama Valley, trying to photograph clouded leopards. And Daniel, in his inimitable way, began to speak of these Englishmen in tweeds reading Shakespeare to each other in the snow at 20,000 feet. And that was the Everest of his imaginings, not the kind of ignoble commercial world of today. And as he spoke to me, I became enchanted by these men. Who were they? And I was never interested in whether George Mallory made it to the top or not on that fateful day. You know, the story goes on June 8th, 1924, he's spotted by Noel Dell with his young companion, Sandy Irvin, uh, going strong for the top on the Northeast Ridge with a mist coming in that envelops their memory and myth, and they have never seen or heard from again. The question is, did Mallory make it before he died? And what interested me is what spirit c carried him on. 
1921, the reconnaissance of Everest was just that. They had to find the mountain. They had to march 400 miles off the map to, to get, find it. To find it, to get to the base <laughs> of a place that had been seen from Campuzong, but never approached by any European. And on that approach march, um, a, a high altitude physiologist by the name of Arthur Kellis, 56 years old, too old for Everest, famously died of exhaustion. And he was buried at a Tibetan fort called Campuzong. Now, according to historians of Everest, in 1921, only one man kept a journal. But I found, alive, four doors from the house I was born in Vancouver, the son of a man who did, Oliver Wheeler, unknown, unsung hero of 1921, the man from the Survey of India, seconded to the expedition, the man, not Mallory, it was Wheeler who found the doorway to the mountain, the route up the East Rongbuk to the North Coal. He was the one who fa famously found the chink in the armor of Everest. And Wheeler kept a journal. And when I visited his, his son, he pulled these two volumes off his shelf, and I, I was breathless, never before seen by Everest historian. You've been listening to a 2011 Tech Nation interview with National Geographic Explorer-in-Residence Wade Davis about his book, Into the Silence, The Great War, Mallory, and the Conquest of Everest. Today, a University of British Columbia anthropology professor, Wade Davis has recently published Magdalena, River of Dreams, a story of Columbia. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, former New York Times journalist John Markoff writes about someone who has influenced much of our lives today and certainly was prescient about it. We talk about John's latest book, Whole Earth, The Many Lives of Stuart Brand. Then in biotech, Dr. James Mackay from Aristea Therapeutics. He tells us about a condition which painfully affects the soles of the feet and the palms of the hand. Palmoplantar pustulosis, or PPP for short. We also hear about its connection to other diseases. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, John Markoff. Well, John, welcome back to Tech Nation. It's great to be back. You know, so much of our personal technology today, iPhones, the Internet, information, where we want it, when we want it, it's easy to think that this all came out of the minds of tech visionaries. But visionaries, they just don't color inside the lines. Visionaries ask questions. And that has always been, of course, with Stuart Brand. And in 1966, he asked, why haven't we seen a photograph of the whole earth yet? That was 50 years ago. We really hadn't seen a picture of the whole earth yet. What happened then? Well, Stuart was actually sitting on the roof of his apartment in San Francisco. Um, he'd taken a half a tab of LSD, 
he was thinking about his father being sick. He'd gone up on the roof to sort of spend the day. And he looked out at the San Francisco skyline and he noticed that the buildings weren't perfectly parallel under the influence of this psychedelic. And so all of a sudden in his mind's eye, he was above the earth and he was looking down and uh, he was seeing the whole earth in his mind's eye. And he began to wonder why he hadn't seen the satellite photo because he knew there were satellites. His mom had been a complete space nut and had influenced Stuart uh, on his interest in space. So when he came off the roof, he started this campaign and he got a sandwich board with the help of uh, his wife at that point. And uh, he went and stood on four different campuses, maybe five. He stood at, let's see, he, he hung out with buttons that said, why haven't we seen a photograph of the whole earth at Berkeley, Stanford, MIT, Harvard. Um, the Village Voice wrote an article. Uh, the San Francisco Chronicle wrote an article. He sent uh, buttons to everybody in Congress, everybody in the Politburo. And uh, actually, NASA began an investigation after a while because it got their attention that there was this crazy guy out on the West Coast. And they had a, <laughs> they had a security guy at NASA Mountain View look into Stewart to see if what he was up to. And uh, because, you know, there's never been a proven link between Stewart's campaign and NASA's eventual decision to publish a photograph, which they did the next year. But the guy did the investigation. Um, this was Mike Malone's dad, by the way. Mike Malone was a reporter at the Mercury. Mike Malone's dad did the investigation. He wrote back to headquarters in Washington. No, this guy's harmless. And at the end of his letter, he said, by the way, why haven't we seen a picture of the whole earth? <laughs> it's a great story. Oh, now we got to investigate you. How unfortunate. <laughs> Absolutely. And of course, that photograph released just a few years later was synonymous with the whole earth catalog. If anything, it was the front cover of that that I really got a big full print picture of it. Take us back. Remember, it's pre-internet. Remind us about the whole earth catalog. That's right. Well, first of all, it's amazing. Stuart Brand has this reputation of showing up at the right place, the right time early on. And he had left San Francisco in 66, 67 to go back to the land. All of his friends were going back to the land to create communes. And so he went to New Mexico. He lasted about three weeks. He found it really boring. He was not <laughs> going to be a rural guy. And so in his journal, I can see he decided to come back and he ended up in Menlo Park, California in 1967. How is that possible? You know, all of the forces that were going to become the modern Silicon Valley were alive and well, although Silicon Valley wasn't named until 1971. But Stuart Brand showed up at the right place in the right time. And um, he said in his journal, I've come here to let my technology happen. And it, it was just the right place at the right time. So that year, um, his father died. And on the airplane back from um, his father's funeral um, in the Midwest, he was trying to figure out what he could do to help his friends who were going back to the land. And he wrote down some notes and he decided he would create this truck store. It was going to be the whole earth truck store. It was not going to be the whole earth catalog. And he would his plan was to put together tools and information and drive to the communes and sell stuff to his friends. Well, it took two trips um, in the spring of 1968 for him to realize that that was a non-starter. Turns out his friends on the communes didn't have any money and he wasn't going to be able to sell them stuff. And so he pivoted 
you know, it was incredible. He started at the Portola Institute. His his uh, mentor was Dick Raymond, who had an urban economist who had set this educational institute up. Portola Institute was Silicon Valley's first incubator. And the whole catalog was its most successful, uh, you know, startup. Uh, another successful startup to come out of the Portola Institute was the Homebrew Computer Club, which is another story. But um, Stewart then pivoted in classic uh, Silicon Valley style, and he created a catalog instead of a truck store, although the truck was around a little bit. But the first catalog, sort of a pre-catalog, came out in May of 68, and the first catalog, which was 64 pages, um, included all kinds of interesting stuff, showed up in October of 1968. Uh, and ultimately, uh, you know, in the next three years, it would sell three million copies and become the Bible of our of our years of my generation. Now, I said I wasn't going to say anything because you, <laughs> you've written all these books. and You keep c- coming close to me, you know, you know, like, who is this guy? It's like, oh, he's my old boyfriend. <laughs> and so, of course, I grew up in Menlo Park. My mother was the oh mayor God. of Menlo Park. And I remember all this <laughs> stuff. I mean, we were like, who are these guys? And, you know, and they play, got pictures of them, you know, playing volleyball in the back. And, you know, it's like, oh, no, no, that became the trampoline. You know, it's like Foster's Freeze is around the corner. There are a lot of people that hung out in Menlo Park and in fires. So it's it's very interesting for so many people sort of on the peninsula were aware of all these things. So many of these people came in and out. And I think what was so interesting about the Whole Earth Catalog is that all of their thinking, everything was pre-internet. You wouldn't think to, it's like, why do you have this catalog? And what could that possibly be? And that's all you had. You couldn't you couldn't look up anything. So let's let's talk about what was in these first 64 pages and each of the catalogs uh, which followed. That's right. And they got larger and larger and more successful. Um, ultimately, I think there were over 400 pages, maybe almost 500 pages in the last one, which, of course, in 1972 won the National Book Award. Which, which is like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. But it was clear. I mean, one of the judges and actually one of the judges was so upset by this that uh, he resigned. Um, but two of the judges felt that this book was going to have more impact and be the only book written from 1968 that anybody would remember. And that's probably true, actually, when you think about it. But what was in it? Um, Stuart divided it into seven um, sections. There were things like whole systems thinking. There was uh, 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 shelter. There was mobility. There was education. Um, he had all of these areas, and he would try to get a subject area editor for each one. Um, people could submit ideas, but it was basically, this was the inside of Stuart Brand's mind. It was what he was curious about. There were no negative reviews. Um, I think they would pay you $5 for a submission, and you could write a short note, and many of them were submitted by readers. Uh, many of them came from Stuart's own interest. There were lots and lots of books. There were interesting tools. Um, there were reports, there were, I mean, there was, everything was in there. Um, and it was, what it was, um, it was a fantasy amplifier. I can't tell you how many people I ran into while I was working on this project. When I told them I was working on something about the whole earth catalog, they would say that they had bumped into something in the whole earth catalog and, uh, it had sent their life in an orthogonal direction. Just, you know, something opened up for them and it gave them the permission to do something new with their life. It just it happened over and over again, dozens of people. And it happened to our entire generation. You, you, you opened up that book and you would find things that you couldn't find any other way. 
as you say, there weren't any negative reviews. If it was negative, it wasn't in the book. That's right. So there was this element of trust and there was this element of sort of homegrown. uh, They tried it out. They kind of described it to you. And and it's like you had some trust that maybe this was going to work. And it also told you how to get it. Yeah. And, you know, there was a... Uh, There was a libertarian sense. I mean, if you read the introduction, it's clearly kind of a libertarian manifesto, although I think it wasn't so much um, libertarian in economic or in a business sense. I mean, Stuart was never a capitalist. I mean, he was supportive of capitalism, but Stuart was an anti-authoritarian. I mean, that's what the feeling was. I want to be free to do my own thing, which was, you know, resonated with all parts of the, you know, the anti-war movement and the counterculture at that time. Stuart thinks of himself as a conservative, but, you know, he's the kind of conservative that can't stand to read the Wall Street Journal because he's so (laughs) offended by their editorial. So what kind of a conservative is that? (laughs) You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is John Markoff, perhaps best known to you with his long career as a journalist with The New York Times. He was part of the team who won the 2013 Pulitzer Prize for Explanatory Reporting, examining the business practices of Apple and other high-tech companies. Today, he's the writer-in-residence at the Stanford Center for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. We're talking today about his latest book, Whole Earth, The Many Lives of Stuart Brand. Well, you have in here at the end, a collection of a full section of brand isms. And they're just great as a standalone section. You know, it could be a little mini book here. In 1969, uh, three years after the Whole Earth catalog started, he observed, I do believe that information is replacing laws. Didn't mean much then, but it means a lot now. It really does. I mean, I've, I've really been fascinated by trying to understand Stuart's relationship to Silicon Valley. There's an interesting thing that happened in 2016-27 after Donald Trump was elected. You know, the zeitgeist about Silicon Valley almost overnight went from Silicon Valley can do no wrong to Silicon Valley can do no right. And there were two books that were published that captured that. There was uh, Franklin Foyer's World Without Mind and Jonathan Taplin's Move Fast and Break Things. And the thing that struck me about both of those books is they both start with biographical sketches of Stuart Brand. Like he's the original sin in Silicon Valley. He was the techno-optimist and their criticism was of techno-optimism. But I came away from reading Stuart's journals with a very different view. I think that the Whole Earth Catalog was one of the first expressions of the things that were happening in Silicon Valley, and it reached an entire generation. You know, the Valley was alive and well in the second half of the 60s. It got named in 71. And Stuart, what I realized from reading that journal is he was much closer to Doug Engelbart um, than most people, well, than I realized, certainly. And even that Stuart remembered. I mean, Stuart ran the camera for Engelbart's famous demonstration. You know, Engelbart was the inventor of the computer mouse and hypertext. But Stuart was around Engelbart all through 67 and 68. And so if you ask Stuart, you know, he subtitled the whole Earth catalog, Access to Tools. And if you ask him, what does that mean? He'll say, well, I was just channeling Buckminster Fuller. Because, of course, Bucky Fuller said, if you want to change the world, give someone a tool and teach them how to use it, Um, which Stuart completely assimilated. But the other thing is he was 
equally influenced by Engelbart during that period. And of course, Engelbart was inventing what would become the universal tool. And Stuart picked that up immediately. You know, he, he of course, later became the first person to use the phrase personal computing, the first journalist. I mean, it was a phrase that had been coined by Alan Kay at Xerox Park, but Stuart was the first one to write about it. And of course, he also wrote this famous article in Rolling Stone in 1972 called Space War. And Space War, of course, was the first time that sort of the impact of computing, personal computing, the network, uh, the internet to come was was visible to people like me, to a popular audience. It's where I learned about stuff that was going on at Park and Sale and that personal computing was going to actually emerge three years later in 1975. Now, of course, all of these these characters, you know, interact and find each other later. And some of them have lives familiar to us today. One of the last editors of the Whole Earth Catalog in, in for a number of years, you know, perhaps three years, is Kevin Kelly, who went out to become the editor of of, of Wired and uh, then 2013's Cool Tools, which is almost a, a reinterpretation of the Whole Earth, but online. Uh, Larry Brilliant, who a lot of people knew, know as uh, the first executive director of Google.org, Google's philanthropic line, went on to the Skoll Foundation. I see those people and others coalescing and creating something called The Well. Let's talk about The Well. Yes. Well, so, yes, The Well is an interesting um, outshoot of a lot of things that Stuart did. You know, he had, even though he was the person to coin the term personal computing, he didn't get his first personal computer until he was the faculty of this business management online course that was happening in the early to mid-1980s in San Diego, and they gave him a K-Pro. And that was the point at which Stuart went online, and he began to use this system called Eyes. And the interesting thing about this experience is that early on, Stuart learned that people um, who are in a virtual world, who are online, um, who are able to disconnect themselves from their identity, um, behave in very interesting ways, often ways that you would never behave if you were speaking to someone face to face. And so when Stuart, with, with support from Larry Brilliant, um, who was, of course, a, a doctor who knew Steve Jobs and who was wanted, he actually, what, what Brilliant wanted was for Stuart simply to recreate the whole Earth catalog online. Stuart didn't want to do that. Too boring. Too boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, not inter and not interactive enough. Um, you know, even their original Whole Earth catalog had supplements who were designed to give readers the opportunity to give feedback. Now Stuart could do it in real time, and he wanted to experiment with that world. And that's where, so he had actually had the idea for what became the well way back in 67, 68. He called it, at that point, he called it E-I-E-I-O, and I can't remember what that stood for, but that wasn't the name he ultimately picked. He picked Whole Earth Electronic Link. And, you know, the interesting thing about the whole earth, I mean, people have credited it with being sort of the source of uh, cyber culture. But you know, and I know that at that point, there was already a lot of online activity. There was the source and there was CompuServe and there was Prodigy. But most importantly, there was Usenet, which was this very libertarian uh, communication system for people who are working in Unix computing laboratories all, all over the world at that point. So very techie people would use this. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And of course, it was filtering out and being used by regular folks, too, who could get a modem and a personal computer. But Stuart did one very brilliant thing. I mean, there were never more than 14,000 
people on the well. And so in terms of the complete digital culture, it was kind of it was kind of a small thing. But Stuart did this brilliant marketing move at the beginning, and that is he gave free accounts to technology writers. So people like me and Stephen Levy got free accounts and we hung out there and we wrote about it. And as a result, the well got this out of scale uh, reputation. And of course, the deadheads decided to hang out there too. So it had this, this kind of counterculture vibe. And it also, I mean, the fascinating thing about the well is it was kind of a step backwards. It was a literary salon, if you will, in electronic form. And it had this hybrid form that they, they got together physically in Sausalito at regular uh, intervals to have parties. But, you know, the most interesting thing about the well that I think has not been reported is that Stewart considered the well to be a failure. He actually quit in um, his role on the board uh, in about six years later. Um, he was very unhappy with the behavior that you see in, in, in these virtual worlds. Ultimately, he was under attack because the well was having trouble growing up and people blamed him for that on the well. And so he walked away. But he didn't. Stuart has always been optimistic about technology and tools and their and their ability to change the, the, the world in good ways. And so he didn't. He didn't publicly criticize that he just left. You know, the one, the one thing that makes me cringe or made me cringe when I saw it, when Stuart launched the well in 1985, he was interviewed by Focus magazine. And the Focus has this big poll quote. And Stuart says um, something like, um, you know, computers and networks suppress your basic uh, instincts. When you communicate by computer, you communicate like an angel. And of course, we know that's not entirely true in these days. <laughs> it wasn't the well. If you can have social media where everybody's your friend in the real yeah. world, you probably don't want to insult them in the uh, online. Yeah. So. And, and of course, that's not the way it worked out. Um, so virtual communities are very powerful things, and we can see the impact they've had on the world. So. You would be mistaken if you thought that Stuart was a, a techno guy. One of the efforts that was going on at the time in the zeitgeist was to preserve and heal the environment. And given the current divide in perception in the United States, and in light of the, the recent Supreme Court decision vis-a-vis -vis the Environmental Protection Agency, this brandism struck me. He writes, or he said... If we tried to teach infants to talk, they would never learn. I suspect it is the same with ecology. It must be learned. If you try to teach it to people, you will only teach them to hate it. It's an experiential learning. It's not an argument learning. Yeah, that's clearly Stewart's perspective. He said that in front of a state legislature committee on environmental education, um, sort of arguing against beating people over the head with environmental practice. Although, you know, I was tempted. I, in fact, in my earlier book, Dormouse, I referred to Stewart as a zealot, and I came to feel that that was kind of the wrong way to frame him, because there's this through line throughout Stewart's life about his commitment to the land and conservation and these principles that he's had about humans role in in protecting and and being good stewards of the environment and he he really he took a con outdoor life magazine's conservation pledge in the 1940s as an 8 year old and he sort of stuck with that all the way through when he spent time on the warm springs indian reservation in oregon in the early 1960s he came away with this real fascination with Native American Indian culture, seeing that the Indians were much more in tune with the land than his white, his white culture. And remind people, 
who Zelig is. Oh, well, Zelig was a, a, a shapeshifter, someone who took on many different guises. And, you know, and Stuart has, has done many different things. But I think that in some ways he, there has been this constant perspective that he's had. I've been speaking with John Markoff about his latest book, Whole Earth, The Many Lives of Stuart Brand. We'll talk more after a break. Back by popular demand, the Biotech Nation podcast on their own. Find them at biotechnation.com and subscribe through your favorite podcaster, including Amazon. The podcasts of the whole Tech Nation program continue to be available on NPR One and many other podcast outlets. In the second half of our show in biotech, Dr. James Mackay from Aristea Therapeutics. He tells us about a painful disease affecting some 175,000 postmenopausal women and its potential connection to other orphan diseases. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with John Markoff about his latest book, Whole Earth, The Many Lives of Stuart Brand. I kept thinking uh, about where people today might see the impact of Stuart in their lives. And it came to me just thinking about all our everyday technology, whether you're Googling something or marathoning Netflix. Uh, and I actually get upset if I find out I have to wait a week for another episode. It's like, what is that about? <laughs> I committed to you. Now I need to see everything all at once. Um, and 30 years ago, he said, immediacy is addictive. There was nothing immediate then, but he saw it. Yeah, he did. And isn't it interesting now, you know, with Danny Hillis in the 1990s, Stuart created this organization called the Long Now Foundation, which is which is dedicated to long term thinking. So I, I think he was aware of that um, early on. He was aware of that impact of electron, particularly electronic technology. And he and Danny um, created this organization in the 1990s that was dedicated to sort of a long-term perspective on human civilization. And they're almost finished with the first 
version of Danny's clock, this mechanical clock that's intended to run for 10,000 years, tick once a year, the cuckoo comes out every thousand years. You have to wind it to actually show the time, although it tells the time automatically. Um, and Jeff Bezos paid for it. So the idea was that you needed a symbol or, or some, some sort of statement of a, a very long-term view of humanity which is, of course, the opposite of immediacy. Stuart, of course, is with us today. He's he's in his 80s. And, of course, he's not just sitting there uh, doing nothing. He's actually been been working on some projects over the over the last few years. Tell us what he's working on. So, uh, you know, I ended uh, I was trying to, you know, how do you write a biography about a guy who's still active and doing stuff? And I tried to put a stake in the ground 2010, 2011, because I wanted to separate sort of uh, biography from journalism. And th that was the point he he launched this organization with his wife uh, that spun out of the Long Now Foundation called Revive and Restore, which is once again, this continuity. And the idea is we we had the ability now, you know, Stuart when he created the whole earth catalog, it opens with this line, we are as gods and we might as well get good at it. And that's been very controversial, but now with Revive and Restore, there are these advanced biotechnology tools, which will perhaps allow us someday to actually bring back species that are extinct, but more importantly, the way they're using it, uh, or they're working with scientists who are attempting to help protect species that are in endangered niches in um, the ecosystem, largely because of climate, climate change. The best example to my mind are people who are trying to um, develop species of chlor coral that can better resist bleaching by using techniques like CRISPR to modify the genetic uh, material of these species. And it's very controversial. Of course, George Church is allied with them, and George Church is the one who was, is trying to bring back the woolly mammoth. And that's the Har Harvard geneticist, yeah. That's a Harvard geneticist, that's right. And the woolly mammoth, the argument is that it played a key role in the ecosystem of the, of the Siberian steppes. And, but, but there's also efforts like the one that's going on in San Francisco, um, there was a, a beautiful butterfly that was one of the first butterflies to go to extinct because of modern industrial uh, impact urbanization in, this, in the San Francisco sand dunes in the 1940s called the Xerxes Blue. And there's an effort to bring back the Xerxes. And it may actually be easier to bring back a butterfly than it will be, would be to bring back a woolly mammoth. And, you know, the, 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 the scientists at the California um, um, in in, Gold, in Golden Gate Park, um, the, the California Museum of Natural History are trying to do, and other groups are trying to do that. Now, the, uh, of course, here at Tech Nation and Biotech Nation, we're so into biotech. I actually love the last brandism I'll, I'll mention. He writes, why is it so hard to get biotech people to talk about the future when you can't get computer people to shut up about it? And I thought, yeah, I, I, I know what he's saying. What, what's up with that? <laughs> what do you, that, I found it a wonderful quote. Do you I mean, I think it's true too. Do you have an explanation about the difference? The, I mean, you certain, we've both seen that in Silicon Valley. You know, one of the things that it might, I've spent 40 years listening to people talk about the future, and I like to say the visionaries are always wrong. Uh, you know, that seems to be there are lots and lots of so-called visionaries in Silicon Valley, and some of them are occasionally right. Well, I, I'd have to say, and I'm just, you know, it's my show. It may get cut, you know. <laughs> I'd have to say, you know, in technology, having been a 
technologist for most of my life, it's actually pretty simple to sit down and start programming, start designing and start doing this and seeing if this is going to work and that's going to work and try to build that and bring friends in or get it funded and you know, have a, have a, make a partnership. Um, it's easy to get things rolling. It may not be easy to get them successful. And it is not possible to understand how they will ultimately be used by the people using them. On the other hand, biotech is so hard to do, you know? It might take you 10 years to get from the lab bench to almost approved by the FDA and a couple of billion dollars. Somebody asked me just the other day, as a matter of fact, why why are you, you know, talking about all this biotech? How do you do that? It's like you're always in the middle somewhere from the lab bench to a real product. You know, why are you talking about that? And I said, well, uh, I said I'm very comfortable there because uh, I, I worked at NASA. And that's a place where you never do anything that hasn't been done before. You don't know how long it's going to take you and you don't know if it's going to work. Hey, it's the same place, you know. (laughs) So we're talking about two different modes of what we can do. And I think at least this is one one explanation that that biotech is a harder place to predict what's going to happen. And once you get there, you learn something else about biology that we didn't understand before. So you're also pushing on science. Science keeps you real. You know, it's not changing for us just because we want it to. Whereas when you're building all these information networks and all this kind of thing, you know, you're building things that haven't been done before, but science isn't stopping you. You're using yeah. it to create it. So I would say that was my answer. I didn't even expect to answer a question. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm out of questions, but I want to ask you one more question, John. Uh, this has been in the works. You've worked on this for a number of years. Um, and when we take it, the, the Stuart Brand book, in relation to your other books, which are not like, here's the topic of the moment. They all look deeply into so many aspects. What would you think is your signature of writing now? What do you think it is? Um, well, I think that I'm someone who grew up in Silicon Valley. I mean, I grew up playing in the Hewlett household. I delivered newspapers to the future homes of both Larry Page and Steve Jobs in Palo Alto. And so um, I've always been curious about why Silicon Valley emerged uh where it did and when it did. That's been a puzzle that I've, I've been thinking about for a long, long time. And, you know, these are all things that sort of play on it. My last three books, you know, Stuart played a role. I looked at AI and robotics. I looked at the rise of personal computing. And I'm still curious about, about why do certain places in the world you know, you grew up in Menlo Park. Menlo Park. Yeah, two, two houses down from the first uh, garage rented by Larry and Sergey for Google. And the house was owned by uh, Susan Wojcicki, who's now exactly. president of YouTube. I mean, it's a bizarre place. It's all happening there. So. Well, it, it was. It was. I mean, there was this period where there was Kepler's bookstore, which was right off the Sanford campus. There was Mid Peninsula Free University. Ramparts was there. There were these guys experimenting with LSD, the International Foundation for Advanced Study. There was the Holder Truck Store. SRI was across the street. Um, the Grateful Dead were around the corner. And you uh, all went over and, and had burgers and beer at Rosati's, you know. So, Rosati's and the Oasis. Or the O. Or the O. Or the yeah, Oasis. The Oasis. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Owned by the same people. 
by the way. And, you know, these guys were trying to understand the relationship between creativity and LSD, and I never bought into that causal relationship. But I did, from some guys at the Santa Fe Institute, think that there might be an explanation. And there were these people, the social scientists at the Santa Fe Institute, who argue that creativity happens on the edge of chaos. And if you remember what it was like, those three laboratories around Stanford campus, Sale, and Doug Engelbart's laboratory in Xerox Park were in the midst of this incredibly chaotic world, unlike the world today. I mean, you know what it was like. The anti-war movement was going on. Um, the you know the counterculture was going on. The civil rights movement was going on. And this technology was emerging all at the same place and at the same time. And if you go there today, what do you have? You've got most of the venture capital in the world investing in risk, high and low. Uh, you've still got lots of people you know, who are trying to do all kinds of things that hadn't been done before. It's a little pricey to live there, but uh, but Stanford is still there. So many, you know, people are still growing up there or around there, maybe in the larger Bay Area. In a sense, you know, the creativity hub it is, is still there. It is, and I, but, but I nothing lasts forever. And I wonder, you know, I thought there was a period in 2005, 2006, where I was spending a lot of time in Europe, and it seemed that there was more innovation happening in the mobile space in Europe than there was in the United States. And then in 2007, the iPhone showed up, and the, you know that was going to be the platform, and it, you know the center of the universe rushed right back to Silicon Valley. But I'm not sure it's inevitable that it will happen the next time. And I'm very curious where that next sort of center point in the universe, the technology universe, will, will be. And unfortunately, if you run out of money, you can't go back to delivering newspapers. (laughs) (laughs) For lots of reasons. (laughs) Well, lots of familiar names in your book. Ken Kesey, of course, Kevin Kelly, Peter Calthorpe, uh, David Liddell. There are many that we actually didn't talk about. Um, And so it it was really interesting and fun to go and read all of these. So, John, thank you for joining me. You know you're welcome anytime. Please, please do come back. Thanks very much, Maura. I enjoyed chatting with you today, too. My guest today is John Markoff. His book is Whole Earth, The Many Lives of Stuart Brand. It's published by Penguin Press. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. While orphan diseases are defined as fewer than 200,000 patients in the U.S., sometimes when we consider these diseases together, we find that their symptoms may source from a common root. And that root may be something that would normally be considered beneficial. In the case we're talking about today, that would be neutrophils, the white blood cells that act as our immune system's first line of defense. Too much of a good thing at the wrong time can lead to medical challenges in and of themselves. Today, I speak with Dr. James Mackay, the president and CEO of Aristea Therapeutics. Well, Dr. Mackay, welcome to Biotech Nation. Thank you very much, Moira. It's nice to be here. Okay, here's a quick question. What condition does a 175,000 postmenopausal women in the U.S. have that most people have never heard of? Uh, it's a, Moira, it's a disease called palmar plantar pustulosis, or more easily, PPP, 
which is probably what we'll see for the uh, the rest of the discussion. Um, it's an inflammatory skin condition uh, where people get um, these outbreaks of pustules, so sort of like blisters on the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet, um, nowhere else in the body, um, extremely painful um, disease. And as you said, it's primarily um, observed in postmenopausal women and interestingly in uh, primarily in people who are either current cigarette smokers or previous cigarette smokers. Now, 175,000, I mean, 175,000 women. So pretty much you probably know someone who has it. If you live in the U.S., you may not know about it precisely. Uh, but, I mean, is it a rare disease? Is it considered a rare disease? It is considered a rare disease. So one of the challenges with the, with the disease is that often, you know, the, 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 your primary care physician will not necessarily diagnose the disease correctly to begin with. They'll think it's some form of psoriasis that's on the, the hands or, and or the feet. Um, and they'll, you know, use normal treatments that they would do for psoriasis, some a topical steroid cream um, or um, some other treatment, but it doesn't work for uh, palmar plantar pustulosis. And then what happens is that the patient's then referred to a dermatologist who will then diagnose the disease and start different treatments. So a lot of people that have PPP probably don't know that they actually have the disease. What's the standard of care now for treating PPP? Yeah, so initially, as I indicated, the, the, your primary care physician will probably just give you a standard steroid treatment, cre- a cream to put on the, the areas. That probably won't work. Um, when the patient gets referred to a dermatologist, they'll normally start with some um, oral um, tablets, um, um, something like um, acetretin um, or methotrexate or cyclosporin. Um, That's drug- serious. Yeah, <laughs> drugs that are, but are, are, are often used by dermatologists to treat skin conditions. Um, But again, they don't work that well for this disease, and none of them are approved by the FDA. Um, Well, they're approved by the FDA, but not not for this disease. disease. Correct, Maura. Um, And then um, often dermatologists will move on to to use injectable biologics. Um, So, you know, more uh, recently developed drugs that um, have been approved for, um, again, for psoriasis. Um, They're normally a a once a month injection. Um, But again, none of those are actually approved for PPP and none of them really work consistently. So these patients are really, um, you know, I've got a, a, they're suffering a lot. Um, And, you know, we're trying to do something to help them. Now, you don't get down the road to uh, biologics and infusions and once-a-month injections unless this is a really painful disease. Tell us about what this is like if you have this condition. Yeah, so the patients will tell you that the there are really two things that are, are, are bad about this disease. One is the just what the disease looks like. So, you know, if anybody wants to, to Google palmar plantar pustulosis and, and look at the pictures, um, you know, they'll see that this is really nasty. The skin is cracked open. The, you can see that the, uh, the hands are all inflamed and, and cracked. Um, so just the appearance of it, you know, psychologically for people is, is, is not good. But then secondly, and maybe even more importantly, the patients say that the pain that they suffer um, because the... Um, the the skin you're you're right at the area where you know 
if you crack the skin open, then you're going to get a lot of pain there. And what happens is that these patients get what are called a flare, multiple flares. So the disease flares up and they get all these pustules on the, the hand. Then the skin dries out, it cracks, and then they get another flare. So they get new pustules on top of the cracked skin. Um, and that becomes extremely painful. Um, and if it's on your hands, obviously, you know, it's difficult to do everyday tasks. If it's on your feet, then it's difficult to actually even walk. Your heart really goes out to these people. Oh, yeah, they have. I mean, let me tell you a story of one of the patients who um, uh, was in our um, last clinical trial that we did, our phase 2A clinical trial. She actually drove six hours each way to get to the site where they were running the clinical trial because she wanted the opportunity to at least try to, to take the, uh, the medicine and see if it would help her. So I think that gives you an indication of what people are prepared to do in order to try and get something that will actually, you know, alleviate this disease in some way. Well, okay, let's get to the root of it. What causes this condition? So we don't really know. It's a, as we indicated at the beginning, it's a fairly rare disease. And so there's not a lot of basic um, research has been done on the, the disease. Um, obviously, as more treatments like um, our potential treatment are developed, more and more is understood about the disease. Um, it's highly likely that it's linked to cigarette smoking. 85% um, plus of people are either current um, cigarette smokers or, um, or previous um, cigarette smokers. Um, it's likely that it's related to the nicotine receptor. So obviously you get nicotine in the, in the cigarettes. There's a nicotine receptor um, in the sweat duct of the, uh, of the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet. So it's something to do with the interaction with, uh, with that nicotine receptor. But most of that is really um, hypothesis or idea at this stage. Um, it still needs to be proven. And we've seen this in other conditions. For instance, for people who have been diagnosed as bipolar, we find that 85% of them smoke. And and many of the treatments specifically for bipolar are trying to hit the nicotinic receptors. So in some sense, you know, they're self-medicating. You know, we have yeah. drugs that can hit the nicotinic receptors. Cigarette smoking does and other things as well. So we don't want to say that, oh, you smoke and you get this. It's just that the that we know it has something to do with the nicotinic receptors, and not everybody who smokes gets this condition. No, that's correct. Not everyone that smokes. The interesting thing is that if people have the condition and they stop smoking, it does actually get better. It doesn't go away completely. So um, someone who, ha who someone who's a cigarette smoker will maybe have six to eight flares a year. Someone who's an ex-smoker will maybe have four to six flares a year. So they get fewer instances of the disease breaking out on their hands and feet, but it never goes away. Never goes away. Okay, so now we know what our target is. What are you doing? What, what, what are you trying to do here? So we're developing a, a molecule called RIST4721. Um, it's, it's what's called a CXCR2 antagonist. So um, CXCR2 is a receptor that sits on multiple different cells that are part of the inflammatory um, system in the body. And our molecule actually um, blocks the CXCR2 receptor and stops the, uh, the, these particular cells called neutrophils that are found in your bone marrow. It stops those cells moving from the bone marrow 
out into the blood and to the site of inflammation. Um, and, and by doing that, we can actually break the cycle of inflammation and dampen down the inflammation that these patients are, are experiencing. Does this have anything to do with the nicotinic receptors? No, it doesn't have anything to do with that. So this is just a question of the inflammation that is caused by this condition. You're saying, nope, we're not going to feed the inflammation. That's correct. So if you look at palmar plantar postulosis and you look at these pustules or blisters that they get on the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet and you um, sample those, then they're full of neutrophils. So the neutrophils, something, you know, causes the inflammatory reaction in the hands and the feet to begin with. Um, probably that's to do with the nicotine receptor. And then it bas- they basically send signals out to the neutrophils to pull them from the bone marrow through the blood to the, the epidermis of the skin on the, on the hands and the feet. And the more and more neutrophils you get, the more bigger the inflammatory response is. And our drug actually stops the neutrophils moving from the bone marrow to the, to the site of inflammation. So we dampen down the inflammation. So the inflammation says, bring, in the, bring on the neutrophils. Once the neutrophils arrive, this starts again. Yeah, so when, once the neutrophils arrive, they actually send out more signals. Come on um, over. To say, you know, tell their, all their friends to come over and, and help out to deal with the, uh, you know, the, the insult that's there originally that's caused the, uh, the inflammation. So the idea is, is keep the neutrophils away. We're going we're gonna to really keep down this inflammation. You are currently in phase two. In fact, it's phase 2B. Obviously, you've seen some success, or the FDA wouldn't be supporting this uh, at this point. Yeah, so we've completed the phase one trials are really where you're testing out the safety of the molecule. It's the first time that you give it to humans. Um, you're testing out the safety, and you're looking across a range of, of dose levels, and you use that to to narrow down the, the, the amount of the drug that you're actually going to give in the next phase, which is phase 2A, which we've completed. And phase 2A is where you're really trying to find out, does the drug actually work in the disease that you're trying to treat? And we completed a phase 2A study um, about a year ago, and we saw some um, nice reductions in the severity of the disease when, um, when our drug was used in these patients. And then that's allowed us to move into what, as you said, the phase 2B, which is called the dose ranging. Um, so you know that the drug has some effect on the disease, and what you want to do now is to study it at multiple different dose levels to determine what is the correct dose level to use ultimately um, um, in, uh, in patients that have this disease. And that's a very important trial because you may want to increase the dosage to get reduced inflammation, but it may introduce side effects. Yeah, that, that's correct. And in the phase 2A trial, we used a, a single dose level of 300 milligrams. And based on that data, um, we've decided to use two different dose levels in the phase 2B, one which is higher, which is 400 milligrams, and one which is lower, which is 200 milligrams. So we're really trying to understand that range of dose levels to make sure that you can get a dose level where you you get a reduction in the disease severity, but it's also still, um, you know, the safety profile is acceptable for the patients. 
your phase 2B, that's fairly new. Are you, are you still enrolling for that? So it's a relatively new trial. We started um, recruiting uh, patients into that trial in April um, this year. Um, it's a fairly large trial for a, for a rare disease. There are 156 patients in the trial. Um, so it's going to take a while for us to recruit those patients. And we'll probably see the data um, from this trial in the second half of 2023. So, um, you know, at least sort of 15 months or so from now. So if you are a patient or know someone who has this condition, uh, how do they find out if they're a candidate for this trial? Yeah, so if you go to um, our website, www aristeatx.com um, you will see all the clinical trials that we're running on the website and we'll be able to um, to click on those and uh, that will take you to a link where you can find um, investigational sites that are um, that are actually running the trial and then patients should contact those investigational sites directly rather than the rather than the company they'll 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 tell you where to go Correct. those links will tell you where to go Correct. Now, you did say there were other trials, and you are running other trials for other conditions. What are they? We are. So once we, once we saw that the drug was working in, in, in PPP, um, you know, we started to look for other diseases where neutrophils were playing a key role um, in the disease. And we identified three other diseases where we're running um, phase 2A um, trials, so the, the earlier stage of, of development. Um, they're, uh, they're, the three diseases are called familial Mediterranean fever, or FMF, um, Bichette's disease, and um, hydratinitis suprativa, or HS, really nasty diseases, um, you know, where the patients need um, new treatments in order yeah. to be able to help them. So we're doing, um, you know, three phase 2A studies, uh, which will we'll see the data for those probably around about the same time as we see the phase 2B study for PPP, so probably towards the second half of 2023. Well, James, thanks so much for coming in. I hope you'll come back. Keep us updated. Moira, it's, it's a pleasure. I'll be happy to come back and talk once we uh, see the data from those clinical trials. And you're the one that made neutrophils sound like a bad idea. They sound so friendly. But, oh, no more neutrophils for us, right? Well, neutrophils are friendly as well because they actually help you fight infection. Um, so, you know, it is important that we still have neutrophils and that they're still functional. All we are doing is trying to stop them uh, perpetuating the uh, inflammation in the body. That's great. Thanks again. Uh, it's my pleasure, Maura. Thank you. Dr. James Mackay is the president and CEO of Aristea Therapeutics. More information about enrolling in Aristea's clinical trials and all Aristea efforts are available on the web at aristeatx.com. That's Aristea, A-R-I-S-T-E-A, T-X.com. For Technician, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. 
Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.